Uh oh. All right, you guys got your Bibles open up Psalm 69. We are, uh, I think we're in for a treat. We shall see. The word lays out for us as we, uh, as we begin in, in Psalm 69, we, we come to what is known as an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where it's basically a psalm of lament. Something is wrong. Uh, and in the midst of the problem or trial, you cry out to God with an attitude like, what's going on? Where'd you go? Are you here? Did you leave me? Or are you still with me? One of the, I think the important things for us to, to have a pretty firm grasp on as we deal with our relationship with the Lord and the struggles of life is the concept of the sovereignty of God. God didn't lose control. The Bible tells us that the things that enter into our life enter into our life through the hands of a God who loves us. The struggle occurs when we start to think that those things enter our life and enter into our surroundings as a result of flesh. That's why Paul would warn us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. But principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness, that there are forces we can't see that are at work, but ultimately, God's hand is on it all. God's hand is is there guiding and leading. And so as we come to this time for uh, the Psalm of David, he begins with this phrase. Uh, really, I see this first part is David in the sea of trouble. He cries out, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. You ever feel like that? Yeah, I bet. So there's there are instances in our life where where... What's going on around us feels like we're caught in a flood and the waters are swirling around us and uh, we're not quite drowning, but we're feeling like we're getting pretty close. So the water, David is crying out, look, the water is up to my neck. It's right here. And then he gives another picture, another metaphor of the circumstances around him. He says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing so he, he also pictured it like quicksand. You ever felt like you're in quicksand? We had a, we had a thing, I don't know if you guys ever saw it, I don't remember what movie it is. But they talk about the, uh, the idea of quicksand in, in terms of sports. One of the things we used to relate it to the kids is, sometimes when you're playing sports, something goes wrong. And then sometimes something goes wrong and another thing goes wrong and something falls that wrong. And you start to feel like you're in quicksand, and the more you struggle, and the more you do, the deeper you sink. And that's what David's talking about. So the first thing he describes in his sea of trouble is the water's up to my, up to my neck, just under my chin. I think the next one's going to get me. The next one's going to take me out. Then he likens it to sinking in the mire. So for me, that, the mire, you know, we don't have a, an abundance of mire, not a lot of swamp around here, but... It's quicksand. It's like I'm stuck in the in the grime. It's sucking me down. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna perish in this uh, in this mire, the quicksand that's pulling at me. Then he says, "I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me." So now the water's over his head. So it's almost like he's saying, oh, "My my feet are in quicksand. My the water's washing over the top of my head." And he's in a place of utter despair. Now, we sing a lot of songs. And they're great songs. We sing a song, we just sang it a little while ago, Amazing Grace, right? How sweet the sound that saved what? And the problem is, we don't believe that line. We don't believe that that is really reflective of us. Because we'd, we'd say, well, I deserve better than this. I deserve better than the circumstances that are going on around me. I deserve a, a, a better, a, that God would treat me, but God owes me 
more than that. And I don't know if, if you've been honest. I know that there have been times in my life where I look around and I have all these questions. Why, God? Why are you doing this? Why, why, why at this time, this way? Why was it a no this time? Or why, why did we, why does it seem like my life is suddenly taking a left turn? What's, what's going on? And I begin, the reality is, I'm questioning. So, so if I go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we all know that verse, right? It says, to do what to the Lord? Trust in the Lord with how much? All my heart. Then what's the second part of it? Lean not into what? So when I find myself where David is, sinking in the quicksand, the water's washing over my head, I feel like I'm buried, and it's, it's, this is it, I'm finally going to drown in my troubles and my problems. I get that backwards. And I'm trusting in my own reasoning with all my heart. And I'm not leaning into what the Lord is trying to do in my life. And in order to... And what we see in the imprecatory psalms, you guys know what I'm talking about. Imprecatory psalms, they, he's saying, God, where are you at? You need to come save me. What's going on? But they always move through his despair and his frustration to start to proclaim the glory of who God is. And that's really what pulls David out of his depression and his, and his struggle and places him back in the right standing where he's trusting in the Lord with all his heart. And he's not leaning into his own understanding. Because that's key for me to do the third part. What's the third part? In all my ways do what? Acknowledge him. And what does he promise to do? He'll direct my path. Is that only true some of the time? So if, it's, if that's true all the time, no matter what the storm looks like, no matter what. So David, in the quicksand, water over his head, this bad, right? Right? If we were picturing something that is not good, that would that's a good picture of it, right? It's, this is my circumstance, this is how I feel myself. I'm drowning, I'm covered with water. Look what he says in verse 3. I am weary with my crying and my throat is dry. The idea that he's laying out is I have cried to the point where I'm a horse. You ever cried that hard? So you're... You, you have this mourning, the, this trouble, the struggle, the drowning, the sinking in quicksand, the idea that he is wore himself out. He literally like crying yourself to sleep. And then in the last part of verse 3, look what he says. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. So he's, he's the, the picture is, I'm weeping, I'm calling out, God, you got to save me, I'm drowning here, and this next wave's going to take me, this next wave, I, I, you know, I didn't even see that this wave coming, it's, it's got, I'm under, my feet are caught in the mud, I'm getting pulled down in quicksand, I'm weeping and crying, and, and now I've, I've cried myself to sleep, I can't keep myself awake anymore, waiting for God to deliver. But the truth is, God's never late. He's always on time. But when God, God's time's not always our time, right? God's ways not always our ways. The scripture lays out for us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how high his ways are above our ways. So when we begin to look at the circumstances of our life, and, and, and really what I think happens in our hearts is we become uh, self-centric. And, and when we're crying in the storm, it's legit. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel that way because that's how we feel, right? That's, that's okay. But when I do that, i got to recognize it's, the world has started to be about me and my circumstances and not about what is it that God is working. How, what is God's purpose? Where's, where's God directing? What's God doing? We look at the life of David, and David certainly went through a lot of hard times. But was there, was there any of those things that David went through as we look at the story of David that was just utterly random and had no purpose? Where God didn't use it to prepare him to be the king he needed to be, or where God didn't use it to, to show the importance of following after him and, and keeping ourselves in a place that's God-centered? And so what we see taking place, he... 
as he continues in the imprecatory psalm, I love how God does this. He did the same thing when we look at Caiaphas. In verse 4, David's going to prophesy. These are going to be words uh, that are are spoke of Christ or from Christ at the cross. And David, as he finds himself in this place, my eyes fail me. God, where are you? I'm going through this. This is so hard. And then he says in verse 4, those who hate me, uh, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. You ever feel like everybody's against you? Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. That means I got a lot of people against me. A lot of people against me. And they are mighty who would destroy me. He's saying it's not just little guys, not little things. It's a big deal. I'm, I'm surrounded by big problems. Uh, being my enemies wrongfully. I didn't do anything to them, but, but for whatever reason, they're my enemy. They've come against me. And though I have st- stolen nothing, still I must restore it. So they're, they're making him responsible. David feels like they're making me responsible for, for doing things that I didn't do wrong. But they're, they're, they're saying I did it wrong. And, and so he's, he's frustrated at how people view him. And he's frustrated about the circumstances he finds himself in. And this, in John 15, 25, are the words Jesus spoke. And he fulfilled the prophecy saying, They have hated me without a cause. Now what is it that Jesus said, A servant is not greater than the master. So if they hate me, they'll what? They'll hate you. And the, the, the idea that, that he's laying out for him is, is from around him and, and around in his circumstances, Jesus is, is hated for really tr- trying to love the people. In fact, there's one point in John chapter 8 where, where the, the Pharisees are arguing, are arguing with him and Jesus says to them, uh, as they're proclaiming the, the glory of Abraham, right? John 8, 8, 58, something like that. He, he says to them, before Abraham was, ego I me, I am eternal God. He, he proclaims the, the Greek name for Jehovah in the Septuagint for Exodus chapter 3. He says, and we know that the Jews understood it. How do we know? What did they do next? They picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, for what, which of my good works do you stone me? And they said, not for any of your good works, but for what? But you make yourself to be God. So the Jews understood what he was saying. The Jews knew what he was proclaiming. That's why they picked up stones. They hated him without a cause. The Bible tells us why was it that Jesus was there. John 3, 16 tells us for God did what to the world? God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. So it's an act of love. In fact, it's the greatest act of love ever conceived on earth that God would come in the flesh to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that God reaches back to Psalm 69.4 and says, that's, that's the fulfillment. They hated me without a cause. So David, when he's saying it, he's he's frustrated at the circumstances around him and the struggle around him, the drowning, the sinking down in the in the um, quicksand, the the water washing over his head. But then I love it because this is how David works. Look what he does, look where he comes to in verse 5. Oh God, you know my foolishness. And Lord, you know the dumb things I do. The dumb choices I make. The things I've done wrong. God, you know me. Doesn't God know us intimately? Inside and out, up and down. He knows the thoughts and the intent of our heart. Do we know our heart? The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, and who can know it? And then in Jeremiah goes on to tell us, who can know it? God says, I know the heart. I test the heart. I search the heart. God knows 
what's in us. So David here, he cries out, God, you know, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And my sins are not hidden from you. See, he acknowledges the fact that, that I'm guilty, Lord, I'm guilty of you. My sins are before you. My, my sins are there. My foolish choices, my, my dumb decisions, the things that, that the, the, the failures or struggles of my life, they're all laid out before you, God. They're all in, in your sight. And then in the next verse, probably the thing I pray more than anything else, or pretty close to more than anything else, let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Don't let me be a bad witness to them. Don't let the choice I make or the attitude I have or the decisions I make as I'm here drowning and being hated and all the stuff that's going on. I don't want to be a bad example. I remember sitting in a, a uh, hospital room with a woman who just got the news that she was not expected to live two weeks. She just went in because she was having some stomach pains. And the doctor said, yeah, you have pancreatic cancer. You probably won't make it two weeks. And I was there when the, the first thing, she did two things. She, first she said it, and then she wrote it. You know those little chalkboards, or not chalkboards, dry erase boards they have in the hospital rooms where they write the nurse's name and stuff on it? So first thing she said was, I want to be a good witness. And the second thing she did is write it on the board so she see it every day. I want to be a good witness. Because God, you know my foolishness and my sin. You know the, the areas in my life that have been out of line with you. And I want to I be that good example. It's, you can see the heart of David changing. The heart of David changing from the idea. Remember we talked about that, that song, right? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that did what? Saved a what? And, and so here you hear David acknowledging his wretchedness. What do we get from the Lord if we get what we deserve? And so David, when he looks at his circumstances and what's going on, it helps him get himself back into alignment with the Lord. Not that God's goal is to make our lives horrible or to ruin our lives or to give us struggles beyond our abilities, which I, I, there are times God does all those things. But the point is to keep ourselves in a right place where our focus doesn't become man-centric, where it's not how everything affects me, how everything's going to you know, mess up what I got going on and instead becomes God-centered again. Lord, what are you doing? Lord, I know I, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm guilty and I don't want to be a bad witness. I want to walk the walk. You want me to walk in the midst of my struggle. You get what I'm saying? This is where David's coming from. So then he, he goes on and he says, Let not those who seek me be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. So, so first he says, I'm, basically, I don't want to be a, a bad example to those who wait on the Lord. So he's, the first group, he's talking about people who, who follow God who are like other believers or other people who want to live their life after God. The second part are people who are after him. Let not those who seek me be confounded because of me. One of the most hurtful things I think David ever heard in his whole life was when Nathan told him, you're the man. And, and, and God, through the prophet Nathan, says... You have caused the unbeliever to blaspheme my name. And here you, you see David's heart. I want to be reflecting the glory and majesty of God in the good and the bad. When things work out for me, when things don't work out for me. To the believer and the unbeliever alike. I want my, I want my life. The Bible says we are all created in the imago Dea. We're, we're all created in the image of God. And in the image of God, we are to be reflectors, right, of, 
of the image of God. And so as we reflect, David's saying, I want to I wanna rightly reflect who you are in my circumstances. And you can start to begin to hear, beginning in verse 5, the, the imprecatory nature of the psalm, the confusion, the crying, the anger, the frustration, begin to turn and begin, he begins to turn his eyes on the Lord. I mean, let's be honest. Who gets us through? God gets us through. God gets us through. Some, sometimes he just reminds us uh, how much we need him. Man, I need you. Lord, I need you now. I need you in this circumstance. And that's where he finds himself. Look what he says in verse 7. Again, verse 7, 8, and 9 all refer to Christ on the cross. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. To me it's funny because I just want you to be able to see it because in the, in the imprecatory nature of the psalm, David is, is making himself the player and saying it to God. And, and so that's where David's at. But I also, what I want you to hear is God saying the same words back to David from the cross. Because your, your frustration, hurt, or pain, or whatever that, that you're going through, David, God's saying, I have borne the reproach. It's on me. Shame has covered my face, just like the spit of all the people who spit on him. That's the purpose. That's the point. That's what he's describing. Look, uh, their reproach is on me. Their spit running down my face. I'm covered in shame. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. The people in my family won't claim me anymore. When we see those same things in the life of Christ, his brothers coming to him and saying, you're crazy. We need, we need to get you out of here. You're, you're, not, you're not right in the head. So as David is saying, Lord, this is my struggle, it's as though as he's he's speaking it up to God, it hits God's glory, is is transformed into the sacrifice and the offering of Christ and comes right back down. I'll bear the reproach, the shame is covering my face, and I will become a stranger to my brothers. He came into his own and his own received him not, right? Scripture goes on in verse 9. Why? Why is it that I've been reproached? Why is it that shame's all over my face? Why is it that I'm a stranger to my mothers and my brothers? It says in verse 9, because, so here's your reason, zeal for your house has eaten me up. A passionate desire for your house, God, offends them. Same verse used of Jesus, remember when he goes into the temple? So important for us to realize that prior to Christ coming into the temple, from the time of Ezekiel to the time of Jesus walking in on, on that, uh, that particular day, the glory of God had not been in the temple at all. The glory, when the glory of God left, it left. It didn't come back. In Ezekiel, when he said... Ichabod, the glory has departed. The glory was gone. It went up over the wall, out the eastern gate. How did it come in? It came in in the body of Jesus Christ, right through the eastern gate. Walked right up into the temple. And what's the first thing it did? Cleansed the temple. And what did they say about him? Zeal for the house of God. It's eating him up. He's passionate for the house of God. And you remember what Jesus spoke. When he, when he spoke from that place, he said... My house is supposed to be a house of prayer. But when he leaves the temple, what does he say? See, your house is left to you desolate. It's not my house. You've rejected me. This is your house now. This is your system. This is your building. This is your stuff. But it's, it's not about me. It's not about me anymore. It says the zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproach of those who have reproached you have fallen on me. So, so David is saying to God, because I love you and I want to worship you and I, I'm going after you with all my heart. 
more reproach falls on me. Reproach meant for you, God, is landing on me. But as David is saying this in his prayer, God is speaking it right back to him. David, your reproach has become my reproach. Your sin, my sin. I am going to pay the price for all of these things. I am going to... uh, Make it right. And David literally is saying, the more zeal I have, the more passion I have, the more reproach I bear. Is that true? If you make a choice to live fully for God, completely holy, surrendered unto Him, will you bear reproach? What do you think? Does the world love Him? I'm blown away. I can't even believe the stuff I see on the news. So, a guy comes out, with video of the Planned Parenthood people making a deal to, to, to do abortions in a certain way so that they can harvest the organs. Do you have some kind of idea what that means? That means they're not going to kill the fetus or put acid on the fetus before they... That means they're going to bring the fetus out of the mother live so they can harvest the organs... And get money. They're on video saying it. And if if I hear one other person tell me that's not really going on, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind. I think they released the, is it the seventh video today? Sixth or seventh video? Recently, anyway, they they released the sixth or seventh video. How many times do they got to show you the same stuff? I think in the fifth one, uh, it's from uh, a room, a surgical room, where they're showing this supposed representative that they want to sell the parts to, uh, how they can do it. So it's not for the squeamish. That is really happening in our world. They are really slaughtering babies. That's crazy. And if you or I were to go down to Planned Parenthood and hold up a sign that says, Murder, Inc., babies are murdered here, you can't, you know, be in their parking lot or on the same side of the street. It's already a court order for all Planned Parenthood. So if you do that, they call the cops right away and they... They arrest you. So you've got to be whatever distance you have to be away so that you can't come into direct contact with the people who are walking in. If you do that, what do they call you? Well, if you're not sure, uh, uh, all you got to do is type it in YouTube and watch. The people who are standing there with the truth and what the people who hate the truth, say to them, you people are sick. Why would you stand here and say these things? Oh, I don't know. Because it's true? (coughs) The more zeal you have evidenced in your life for God, the more reproach will come. more and more I think the the guy who who did this and I don't know he's got something some crazy number like a 120 hours of video he's working his way through so it's not some little thing that's a lot of video <laughs> and he is being called the criminal uh, that's crazy up is down down is up Evil is good, good is evil. Zeal, the more zeal, the more passion for the Lord, the more reproach. He says in verse 10, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. So, so David's, David is saying, look, when I, when I mourn, I'm mourning over my situation, I'm mourning over what's going on in my life, and, and he makes a choice, I'm going to fast, and I'm just going to really seek the Lord during this time. More reproach. What are you fasting for? 
Didn't they say that to David? Don't you remember when the, the, the baby that he was praying wouldn't die? He said he fasted, he laid on the ground, he wept, he cried the whole time. But when the baby finally died, he got up and cleaned himself. And what did his servant say? You don't make any sense. Why were you weeping and fasting before and now you want to eat? He's saying, look, when I, when I experience this, when I go through these things, the more... The closer I want to draw to the Lord, the more reproach wants to come. He says in verse 11, I also made sackcloth my garment. He, he humbled himself. The idea when you would really seek the Lord in the Old Testament, you would, you would come out in sackcloth and ashes. Ashes on your head, just sitting out before the Lord. God, I, I don't understand what's going on. And you would sit and pray and cry unto the Lord until you had an answer. We kind of lose that now, don't we? He says, oh, I, I've got sackcloth. Even though I, I, I'm, I've, I've stepped out in humility. Now, what does David stepping out in humility have to do with anybody else? Why should they care? But it says, hey, even though I'm in sackcloth as my garment, I become a byword to them. They, they ridicule me. The idea is that he becomes a, a song for the drunkards. A mocking song. Look what it says. Those who sit in the gate speak against me. That's the leadership. The leadership speaks against me and I am a song to the drunkards. They mock me in song. But, in strong contrast, as for me, my prayer is to you. So you see David again, bringing himself, bringing his focus back to the Lord. As for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, there's three things he's going to lay out here. In the acceptable time. So, God, in your time. I'm, I'm praying that you move in your time. You guide me, you lead me, you direct me in your time. In the acceptable time. Oh, God, in the multitude of your mercy. So he's praying for, for these things to take place in God's time and by God's mercy. By your mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. <laughs> Look at me in your mercy. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me. I want it in your time, by your mercy. Answer me or deliver me. Show up. How long we got to pray that? Ten minutes? couple of moments that really is supposed to mark our life what did, what did Paul how did Paul instruct us in regard to prayer yeah pray without ceasing so so that means constantly right constantly having that attitude before the Lord oh Lord he's using God's name oh Lord Jehovah Yahweh in your time oh God in the multitude of your mercy hear me in the truth of your salvation Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. So we come back. See how we come back full circle? Now we're back in the quicksand. Oh God, in your time, I'm sinking. And the more I struggle, the deeper I go. But God, in your time, according to your mercy, deliver me out of the quicksand. You take me out. Lift me up. How long can you live in quicksand? As long as God says you can. Yeah, I always think of, uh, what was that Disney cartoon, Aladdin? You know, and the genie could never, he couldn't kill somebody, but he also says you'd be amazed what you can live through. And whenever I hear that, I think, yeah, that's pretty true, isn't it? You'd be amazed what you can live through. There are times you're pretty sure, this wave's going to take me out, God. I'm under the water. I'm sinking down in the quicksand. But this isn't the last psalm. It's not the end of the journey. He says, God, you deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. So he comes back around in his prayer. Now his complaint moves to prayer. And in the prayer, he's asking for deliverance out of the quicksand. 
and deliverance out of the water. Deliverance from feeling trapped. Deliverance from feeling like he's going to drown. God deliver me. Then in verse 15. Let not the flood water overflow me. Nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. He's declaring, I feel like I'm dying. Three different ways to say it. I feel like I'm dying. God, don't, don't let me die. Don't let me die. Don't let me perish. When, when struggles come, do they come for our destruction? I, you know, Jeremiah 29.11 is a, is, a, is a pretty awesome verse, right? It says that the thoughts that God has toward us are not evil, right? I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, peace, not of evil, not your destruction. I want to give you a future and a hope. Now, how does that future and a hope come? For the people he's speaking to in Jeremiah 29, it was not an easy road. It was a hard road. It's a difficult journey. It was a hard struggle. And I bet if you could ask any of those slaves that were going into Babylon, they would have said... We're drowning. We're stuck in quicksand. The water's going over our head. God, deliver us. And God would say, I'm right here. I haven't left you. I haven't forsook you. I'm walking right beside you. I'll deliver you. When we don't have strength to stand, where do we find that strength? From the Lord. When we don't know which way to go, how do we figure out where to go? From the Lord. Learning to live in that place, is that valuable or no? Is that a useless lesson? Yeah, it's an important lesson. Lord, I I need you. Lord, I want you. Verse 16, he says, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. The word loving kindness or, or tender mercies throughout the Psalms Oftentimes the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is the Hebrew version of agape. Your self-sacrificing, loyal love. Part of the character of God. So he's saying, hear me God, listen to me, O Lord. Because your love, the way you love me, is good. And so he's reminding himself, right? I, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm sinking. I'm stuck in the mire. I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself in trouble. But I know you love me. He's reminding himself, I know you love me. So hear me. I, I know you'll hear me because you love me. God loves us. And because he loves us, sometimes... We are going to go through hard things. And sometimes the hard things we go through aren't for us at all. Sometimes it's for somebody else. Sometimes it's for those who watch. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. So hear me. Your love is good. Turn to me. Look at me. Put your eyes on me according to your love. Same word. Has said. According to your chesed, the way you love me, how much you love me, look to me, turn to me. Verse 17, do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Listen, Lord, I'm going down for the last time. I know you hear me because you love me, so look at me, look to me according to your love. Keep your eyes on me according to your love. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Draw near to my soul and purchase me from my destruction. Deliver me because of my enemies. Redeem. So David crying out, Lord, redeem me. Lord, redeem me. It reminds me of of something God uh, asked someone to do. One One of probably the most difficult things... I think God's ever called anyone to do. I think there's two of them that really stick out to me. One, God said to the prophet Ezekiel, your wife is going to die and I don't want you to mourn her. And that became an object lesson to the children of Israel. In the same way God is saying to Israel, when, when I deal with you, I'm not going to mourn. Just like Ezekiel didn't mourn his wife. I think that was a hard thing 
for Ezekiel to do. But, but the one that's above that is when God said to Hosea, Hey, you know that wife I told you to, to go get, the prostitute? The one who had at least one child for you and two children of questionable uh, lineage, whether they're yours or not. And then ultimately, she ran away with some other guy. Yeah, in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman. Well, I thought, well, love's just a feeling. How can God command you to love? Well, let's take it a step further. How does God command you to love a woman who is currently being loved by a lover and committing adultery? So he said to Hosea, I want you to go back and get your wife who's in a relationship with another man who, with whom she is committing adultery. Ultimately, we, what we learn from the story is that she is uh, some type of slave because Hosea, when he goes to get her, he has to buy her. Some kind of house slave for the guy. She cost him 15 pieces of silver. That's half of what Judas got for Jesus, right? It's half the price of a slave that was gored. So it's not a huge, valuable sum, right? But I just want you to think of the emotional turmoil as God says to Hosea, go get her. And I want you to love her. Even though she committed adultery and is right now committing adultery. You go get her, you bring her home, and you love her. And God said, that is a picture of my redemption of Israel. So when David says, redeem my life from destruction, I just want to put it in scope for you. Because that object lesson is probably insignificant in comparison to what it actually costs God to do the same thing for you and me. Redeem my life from destruction was a call. Redeem my life, Lord. Draw near and redeem me. Deliver me from my enemies. And then immediately, don't lose sight of it, immediately in verse 19, look where David goes. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. You know how broken I am. You know my reproach. You know my shame. You know my dishonor. Now, David might mean this, because we look at the next verse, my adversaries are all before you at the way people are treating him. You know how all these guys are treating me. What does that imply? Man-centered view. Look at how they're all treating me. But what does it refer back to? Look at how they all treated Christ. This is what he paid to redeem you. It's what he paid to redeem me. He took my reproach, shame, dishonor. He took all of those things upon himself. Because in verse 20, again, we have a a prophetic word from the Psalms pointing to Christ on the cross. Reproach has broken my heart. Do you remember what they did to Christ on the cross to find out whether or not he was dead? What did they do? They pierced his side with a with a spear, right? Punctured the sack around his heart, and what came out? Blood and water, right? M- medical science tells us today, almost literally, you could say Jesus died of a broken heart. His heart ruptured. That's the significance of the blood and water. The reproach 
has broken my heart. And I am full of heaviness. Listen to these words. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. From the cross, were there comforters for Christ? No, there's no comforters. What are there? People who stick the tongue out. Psalm 22 tells us all about it. Who reproached him. Who rebuked him. Who said, hey, let's see if you're God's favorite, come down off the cross. Show us you're God's favorite. Because if you're really God's favorite, God wouldn't let you die. Now, just think about it. How many times have we thought the same thing? Well, if God's really for me, I wouldn't be going through this. If God really loved me, I wouldn't face this struggle. If God really loved me, the doctor wouldn't have said cancer. If God really loved me, this, this event, whatever has happened in my life, wouldn't have happened. Just remind yourself that those are the words from the crowd looking to Christ who was becoming a propitiation for us, the mercy seat for us, the substitutionary sacrifice. It was, he was becoming that for us so that he might make us right in relationship with God. Look at verse 21. This is why I say we're pointed to the cross. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That reminds you of somebody? Yeah. When they offered him gall, what did Jesus do? He didn't take He didn't take the gall. They offered him gall. He shook his head. What was gall? Gall was a pain reliever. Would dull the senses and, and reduce the pain and prolong what's going on. He didn't take that. But then when he thirsted, they dipped it in the vinegar that he drank. When he said, I thirst, would they give him the drink? Vinegar to drink. Vinegar to drink. Here David's saying the same thing. Look, they, they, they give me gall for my food. They're trying to, to give me something that, that, that helps me deal with the pain. But when I say I'm thirsty, they want to give me vinegar. Anybody ever take a big swig of vinegar? No, it's... A little bit of vinegar is okay, but the closest thing I can describe it to is soapy water. You ever had a giant gulp of soapy water? Kathy likes to clean the headboard at our old bed. And one night, she cleaned it and left the big glass of soapy water right by where I put my glass at night. And in the middle of the night, I wake up and I think... Man, I am so thirsty. So I reach up, you know, in the dark, and there's a glass. Oh, yeah, got water in it. I sit up a little bit, and I took the biggest, fattest swallow of soapy water I've ever had in my life. And for the next 15 minutes, I tried to hack it all back out. Kathy wakes up and all I could say to her, are you trying to poison me? (laughs) It had to be so much worse to be hanging from the cross and thirsty and get vinegar. No? No, they, they give me vinegar to drink. So then... He looks now, he's, he's, his eyes turn toward the wicked, toward his enemy. He says, let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Oh! Let their well-being be a trap. Huh. I think that's the kind of judgment God's pouring out on our nation right now. And yeah, let their well-being... Be the trap. Oh man, I, I'm good. I got no need. I'm, life is, what do I need God for? What, what, why would I need God? I have need of nothing. I've got everything I want. Everything is good in my life. Everything that I, that I think I, I might want or desire or need, man, I'm, I've got it all. 
Flip to the right a little bit. Come to Isaiah chapter 3. There's a unique judgment that God talks about in Isaiah chapter 3. And I think it's so apropos for where we find ourselves these days in a nation that calls evil good and good evil. That redefines laws of God and says, no, that's not murder. Right? All I got to do is, if, as long as you do it on this side of the line, it's not, it's not murder. But if you do it on this side of the line, it is. Well, how about this? What would the scientists say if one of their satellites landed on Mars and found a cell? What would they say was on Mars? Life. Oh, I wonder why it doesn't work the other way. In the womb, it's not life. On Mars, that'd be life. But in the womb, woe to him who calls evil good and good evil. Who calls bitter sweet and sweet bitter. In Isaiah chapter 3, it says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem... And from Judah, the stock in the store, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water. Hmm. The mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty, the honorable man, the counselor, the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. Just consider all the things that God says he's stripping away. You're not going to have as much as you used to have. You're going to lack water. The mighty man, the guys of old that you used to look up to and say, man, that guy. You know, the, the heroes we would look up to. The man of war. The people who fought with honor. Oh, the judge. You know, the guy who can rightly discern between right and wrong. I'm going to take those away. That remind you of anything? We got, we got judges making weird decisions lately? No? I don't know. I just think so. I'm going to take away the prophet, the one who will be, is willing to speak the word of God. I'm going to take that away. Just watch the news. Every day there's more of them flipping and saying, yeah, what, what mankind says, man's the judge, not God. Man can discern what's right or wrong, what's good or bad the diviner and the elder the captain of the 50 the honorable man the counselor the skillful artisan the expert enchanter yeah that all that stuff is gone we look at the the way people used to do art and the way people do art now it's a little different isn't it you ever been in the sistine chapel and looked up at what michelangelo painted and then you look at what they sell for art today you think that's the same stuff Pretty wild. I'm going to take all these things away, he says. I will give children to be their princes. And babes will rule over them. There's not a better example of the weak and the inexperienced. To remind you of anybody you know. The people will be oppressed. Everyone by another. And everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent, disobedient, hateful toward his elders. And the base, the low, is going to hate the honorable. Kind of like, I don't know, burning a flag in front of the guy who bled for you so you could do it. The base will hate the honorable child disobedient insolent toward the elder when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father he's going to say hey you have clothes you be our ruler i know how we'll pick the next president does he have clothes yeah let's get him i know this guy let's pick this guy he's got billions of dollars you gotta be kidding me I got in trouble one time. I'll get in trouble again. But I got in trouble one time. I got in a in an argument with a pastor friend of mine when we were still in California. And there's a couple of guys running for governor. 
One of them was a bodybuilder. He's the guy who I think eventually got the job. And the other guy was a believer. And this pastor friend of mine said, no, you can't vote for that guy. I know, I know he believes the Bible and all that stuff, but he's unelectable. If we vote for him, uh, that Democrat guy might win. And I said, are you kidding me? When I get to heaven and God looks at my voting record, he's never going to see me vote for a guy who's pro-abortion. I don't care. The Bible says we get the leader we deserve. You want to change that? Do something about it. But don't do something about it by compromising your view, compromising the truth, saying, oh, well, it's just a little thing, right? I'll overlook this idea. I'm going to cast my vote. 6,800,000. That's how many babies since Roe v. Wade. How many Jews in the Holocaust? Yeah. We call that a Holocaust, right? Six million? Is that not mind-boggling to you? That's crazy to me. It's incredible when I think about it. God says, I'm going I'm to let them choose their leadership like a bunch of knuckleheads. Is there a better way? How do we choose our leadership? Man, oh, that guy looks good on camera. You don't want to pick an ugly guy. You don't want him to represent the whole world, right? Or or the whole nation. So he's got clothes. He says, let these, let these ruins be under your power. And in that day, he'll say, no, I can't fix your problems. And in... And, 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 for in my house is neither food or clothing. I don't have enough. I, I, I can't be the ruler. I don't want to be the ruler. For Jerusalem stumbled, Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. Why did they fall? They fell because their tongue and their doings were against the Lord. That means they said, we don't want you. And they did things that said, we don't want you. To provoke the eyes of his glory. To look on their countenance. Witnesses against them. And they declare their sin like Sodom. How did Sodom declare their sin? Right out in the open. Uh, I bet that was the first parade. Wasn't it? Two angels in the house. Bunch of guys in the courtyard. Want the angels to... I don't see how that's any different than... Then some of the parades we see, people ask all the time, do you think God's going to judge us? What are you, kidding me? We're under judgment now. The judgment is here. We don't have to worry. We're not appointed unto wrath. The wrath of God will not land on us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we still got a job to do. And if our nation falls, don't think we're not going to experience some of the same things that happens when, when that goes on. What, what is it that God looks for from us? To be his herald. To be his witness, right? He says, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. This is what he's calling for the wicked. And when I hear that it's, it's like I'm listening to Paul because he says I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ why not well because it's the power of God the salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed The righteousness of God given from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, what is this suppression of the truth? Look at verse 19. 
This is what the suppression of the truth is. Because what may be known of God is shown to them. For God has shown it. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So what is it that God says? Does God say man doesn't have enough evidence for God? God says, you got all the evidence you need. Your guilt is your suppression of the truth. Why do you suppress the truth? You love your sin. Love the, the love of sin is why men don't come to God. For as many as received him, he gave the power to be called children of God to all who believed upon his name. What was the condemnation of men then? The condemnation of men was light came to the darkness, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. It doesn't say men didn't see the light. Men see the light. They love the darkness. Because, because what? Although they knew God, who? Everybody. Almost everybody? What about the pygmy? Oh, he says, everybody. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor are thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and professing to be wise, they became as fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They made God in an image they would be satisfied with. What's he saying back in... In Psalm, in Psalm 69, what was he laying out for us? He said, Let their eyes be dark so that they do not see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate that no one live in their tents. That's God's judgment. God says, I show, people know I exist, but they love their sin. They love their sin. So God says, I give them over. To what? Their sin. To do what's shameful. And that's where we see our world today. For they persecute the ones you have struck. They persecute the ones God chastens the world persecutes the ones that God chastens and they talk of the grief of those you have wounded so while God works in the lives of his people the world hate them add iniquity to their iniquity add sin to their sin and let them not come into your righteousness let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But, David's going to swing again, but I am poor and sorrowful. How is it that anybody comes to God? Whether the high, the mighty, the low, how do they come to God? Just like David did right there. I am poor and sorrowful. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch. Wretch, I am a wretch. Poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. And I will praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. I will praise you. Which is what? In verse 31. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. For to obey is better than sacrifice. Follow him. The humble will see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. God hears those who, what is the key? What is it that Jesus commands all men everywhere? How do we come? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let go of the garbage we're holding on to and grab a hold of him. 
Let heaven and earth praise him. Let the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. How does the imprecatory psalm end? He's he's complaining, he's crying, God, where are you? I'm struggling, save me, deliver me. He several times goes back to his own frailty, his own brokenness, his own sin, his own powerlessness, his own poverty. But what happens at the end? He gets his eyes on God. When he gets his eyes on God, he's full of hope. God's going to save the city of Zion. God's going to deliver. God's going to move. If it was good for David, it's good for us too. I am the Lord. I change not. So if God moves for David, he moves for us. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.